Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. All right, guys, we are starting a brand new series. So go ahead, turn your Bible to James. That's where we're going to be this morning. My name's Kevin Choate, and I am the college pastor. And I just want to say welcome. Glad you guys are here this morning. You chose to get up early on a weekend to make this an important time. Uh, to fellowship with other believers, to open God's Word, to learn about Him together. And I pray that it would move your heart uh, to worship Him more, to know Him more, to follow Him better. Um, so if this is your first time, welcome. If this is your first time in a long time, welcome. We're glad you're here. We always have breakfast, we always have coffee, we always have Bible teaching, and we always have discussion. That's what you can expect at College Life. We're here, like Sabrina was saying, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. And one of the ways we follow Jesus is into his word and into community. And that's what we're all about this morning, okay? So we're going to get right into it. You guys ready? Okay, so you guys got your Bibles opened up to James. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be diving in deep. It's going to be good. Um, And I'm going to start with a hard question. Raise your hand if you have ever asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever asked that question? Okay. Or maybe where is God in this situation? Yeah? Okay. We've all been there before, right? We can look at a season in our life, contemplate how difficult it is, whether it's maybe the death of a loved one, maybe it's a personal failure, maybe it's a conflict with a friend. Uh, maybe it's a breakup with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and we can ask, what did I do to deserve this? Well, the reality is we live in a broken world with broken people, and because of that, we all have a mutual problem. We all face what James would call trials. We all face trials. We all face hard times. And the question that we have to answer today is, is there hope in the midst of our trials? Is there hope in the midst of these difficult times? And my goal today is to see that the Christian life is unique because in our trials, there's purpose. In our trials, there is purpose. Because if you are in Christ, then God has a personal plan for you amidst every trial. That's right. The Christian can hope in the midst of trials and hope in the future. So we're going to accomplish this goal today by seeing that because God has a purpose in our trials, then we can have hope. That's the main idea. If God has a purpose in our trials, then we can have hope. We're going to see this by looking at God's purpose. We're going to be looking at this by looking at God's perspective of trials. And lastly, we're going to look at God's patience in the midst of trials. And all of these ideas come from Uh, the book of James. And James 1, 2 through 8 is where we're going to start, and we're going to finish in James 5, 7 through 11. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of James, the book of James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church for a really long time. And basically, when you look at this book, it's often considered 
uh, a lot of people's favorites because it's straightforward, right? It is a book of application. You know exactly what James is telling us to do, and it really answers the now what question. Okay, I've trusted in Christ for the salvation of my sins. I, I've, I've decided to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Now what? What does the Christian life look like? And over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about the now what of the Christian life. In particular, uh, our series is called Walking in Holiness. Walking in Holiness. And after this series, I hope that we are all motivated. I hope we are all encouraged to live and practice what we are in position. Meaning, if we have been saved and declared righteous by God, how can we live that identity out? Right? Living out in practice what we are in position. So we'll start by reading the passage, James 1, 2 through 8. So if you would, open your Bible and read along with me. After we read it, we'll make a few observations. Verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without a reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So my first point comes from the first few verses of this chapter, uh, but it focuses on God's purpose. And it's this idea that God has a purpose in our trials. James 1, 2 through 3 shows us that one of God's purposes in our trials is that every trial is an opportunity for joy. Every trial is an opportunity for joy. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, why would James encourage believers to count it joy when they face trials? Because our world would say, when you face trials or difficulties or hard times, that your life is horrible, that your life is worthless, that your life is meaningless, and you cannot be happy unless you change your circumstances. You cannot be happy unless you get everything that you want. You cannot be happy unless it goes exactly like you want it to. I mean, it takes effort to really view it through a different perspective. Yet, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to respond with joy. Why? Because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So to be clear, not every aspect of a trial is joy, but every trial is an opportunity for joy. It's an opportunity for joy, and it's an, an opportunity to be shaped, to be molded, to be refined, to become more like Christ. It is an opportunity to, for our testing, the testing of our faith to produce this steadfastness, right? And in verse 4, it continues. It says, so that you may be perfect and complete, doesn't it? And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want you guys to imagine trials as basically like a forge, okay? So trials are the refining process, right? It is the force, and it forces us to depend on God. It reminds us that we can't do this life on our own. If life was easy, why would we need God? 
If life was easy, why would we need God? We need God, and God uses the heat of our trials, the heat of the hardships, the fire, the smithing tools to bend, to shape, to mold us into what we are supposed to become. And that is into the image of Christ. That is the purpose of trials, is that God is using them. He is not wasting them. When you look at a trial or a difficult time in your life, it is not worthless. But even in the hard times, God can bring a reason out of it. God can produce something really beautiful in a difficult situation. See, when we think about trials, oftentimes what we have is this victim mentality, right? That God is punishing us, or He hates us, or, man, if this is happening, God can't even exist. Maybe you felt like that. But throughout Scripture, what do we see? Whether it's Joseph being sold into slavery, whether it's Job suffering at the hands of the devil, whether it's our Christ being crucified on the cross, whether it's Daniel in the lion's den, what we see is that God uses trials to shape us into what or who he wants us to become. God uses trials to shape us into who he wants us to become. When you look at trials, what James is encouraging us is to remember that God has a purpose, even in the hardest of circumstances. Um, it's been said that trials are divinely orchestrated opportunities for character formation. I'll say that again because it's really good. Trials are divinely orchestrated opportunities for character formation. The book of Acts is full of trials. We see that with uh, the Apostle Paul. It seems like every city he goes to, he has a bad time. Uh, and it's, it's the, same, uh, the same is true in Acts 14. And it shows us that this passage, it shows us that persecution and suffering are natural consequences of following Jesus. If you decide to make Jesus your number one priority, you will face persecution, you'll face suffering, and you are not choosing the easy life when you're choosing Jesus. We shouldn't expect the easy life when we decide to follow him. And we see this is what happens to Paul uh, whenever he uh, has this experience. Okay, so let's read verse 19 in Acts 14. And it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Uh, when you would stone someone, that was a basically surefire way of killing someone. Okay, so that's why they supposed he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In the NIV, this last section says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And it's like this. Not only are trials guaranteed, but in that guaranteed trial, there is hope, knowing that God can use them for divine purposes. So, whenever we are in the midst of a trial, our hopeful response, if we are to have one, sometimes it's only thinking 
that one day this trial won't exist or one day, you know, uh, God is going to be in the renewal of, of all things. And that's something we're going to talk about at the end. But there's also hope in the midst of the trial, knowing that God, who is sovereign and in control and overall, has allowed this circumstance to happen. And not only has he allowed this circumstance to happen, but he can bring something amazing out of it. You look throughout the story of Scripture, through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, and time and time again, God uses what man intended for evil and leverages it for good. That's what Genesis 15, 20 says when it's talking about the life of Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery, and yet he is the one who saves Israel by his, by his leadership within the nation of Egypt. You know, it's some amazing things that God can use, even the hardest of circumstances, for divine purposes. Trials, hardships, difficult situations, and the Christian life are not ends of to themselves, but instead God uses them. He uses them to shape us into who he desires us to be. He doesn't just let us suffer and leaves us, but through our suffering, he can change us and he can work his plan. R.C. Sproul, he has an amazing quote. He says, because of Christ, our suffering is not useless. It is part of the total plan of God who has chosen to redeem the world through the pathway of suffering. Think about that for a second. It is part of the total plan of God who has chosen to redeem the world through the pathway of suffering. When you think about the greatest act, the greatest work in history on the cross, it was through Jesus' brutal suffering that was a, a pathway was created back to God. It was through his intense and brutal suffering that a way was made back to God. Now, I want you to think about this. If God can bring a purpose, a magnificent purpose, out of the most wicked of actions, man crucifying God in the flesh, if he can bring great purpose out of such a wicked thing, then can't we trust God to work in our difficult situations as well? John Acuff, he's a speaker, he has said, one of the greatest mistakes you can make in life is assuming all your thoughts are true. So I want us to take a moment and consider, what are our emotions based on? What are our feelings based on? Are they based on what is true? Or are they based on what we feel in the moment? Or what we are experiencing in the moment? Consider this. What are your feelings and your thoughts based on? Are they shaped by worldly perspectives or are they being shaped by God's perspective? If we have no hope in the midst of our trials, we may believe in God, but we aren't believing God. We may believe in God, but we aren't believing God. See, if we're not hopeful even in the midst of our trials, if we can't consider it joyful as an opportunity for growth and God working out his divine plan, then maybe we believe in God, but we're not believing that God is sovereign. We're not believing that he is in control. We're not believing that he is good. And we're exchanging the truth about God for a lie, that he is only good when I'm happy, that he's only good when he gives me things that I want. See, I think there's a way that we can look at things from God's perspective. And it's not my words, but it's James. 
Uh, he says this in 5 through 8 of how we can have God's perspective in viewing trials rightly. Verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So this shows us, uh, oftentimes this section is kind of taken out, you know, ask for wisdom, it'll be given to you. But it's contextualized on two bookends of uh, trials. Basically, how, why, what, what role does wisdom play in the midst of trials? Well, wisdom is needed to view trials correctly. Wisdom is needed to view trials correctly. That's why he sandwiches it in between these two sections is, is because it's not natural to view them in the way that God views them. We need his wisdom to do it. And so it begins showing us in verse 5 that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So here's the beautiful thing. When we face trials, we are not helpless, but God gives us everything we need to face whatever trial that we're in, to face the trial with his perspective. What we need is wisdom. And if we lack it, we need, all we have to do is ask, and God gives generously to us. But another purpose that God brings out of our trials is to depend on Him. To depend on Him. What does He say to do in the midst of our trials when we lack wisdom? He says that we should ask God. How do we ask God? We ask God through prayer. Sometimes God uses trials to bring us back to Himself. Right? Sometimes he uses trials to bring us back to himself and depend on him. Trials, what they should do is they shouldn't make us run from God, but they should actually enhance our prayer life and they should enhance our dependent, dependence and our need on God. In verses 6 through 8, it reminds us that our request for wisdom should be marked by genuine trust. So what verses 6 through 8 say, it says, Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now before we get into this, I want you guys to think for a moment, why do we doubt? Why do we doubt? We had a series on doubt uh, last semester where we talked about all the things that, that lead us down pathways of doubt, and they kind of fit into two categories. They were either emotional-based or they were intellectual-based, right? Maybe we feel undeserving. Maybe our needs are unworthy of God's attention, or we don't like how God is doing things, and so we doubt Him. But our attitude in prayer should not be skepticism or doubt. But instead, it should be fueled by the Holy Spirit. It should be motivated by our faith in God, His character, and His promises. The Psalms taught us how to deal with our doubts by first turning to God, confessing to God, asking God, and then trusting God. But Scripture is clear on this, on what faith looks like. We've got a few uh, sections of scripture here. It says, Without faith, it is impossible to pl please him. This is Hebrews 11. First Timothy says, Pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. 
Matthew 21, 21 through 22 says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what is done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken and cast into the sea and it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. Now let's contrast that for a moment with the double-minded man in uh, James 6-8. The double-minded man is someone who seeks human wisdom before godly wisdom. There's someone who becomes bitter and resentful toward God. There's someone who acts as if God doesn't exist or isn't capable of delivering him from his trial. The double-minded man is someone who knows what God's Word says, knows God's character, but doesn't believe it. The double-minded man is ultimately trying to serve two gods. James 4.4 says, A friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Really what this passage is getting at in verses 6 through 8 is this idea of hypocrisy, right? Think of the moment of your salvation, the moment in which you decided to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. What was that moment fueled by? It was fueled by humility, your realization that you were a sinner and you could not do this life on your own. You could not save yourself. And it was paired with faith. Faith, trusting in God to save you from your sins. What's amazing is that the double-minded man will say simultaneously, I trust God with my salvation in the future, but I do not trust Him with my salvation today. Not my spiritual salvation, but maybe deliverance from trials or sustainment in trials. And so we simultaneously say we have faith, but lack it in the moment. So what this passage is getting at is hypocrisy. We're all familiar with this idea, right? And uh, to, to illustrate what this might look like, I want to share a story. So John Bunyan, in his book, the, Bil the Pilgrim's Progress, writes about the Christian life as this long-form analogy. Okay? The main character is actually called Christian, and he is on a journey to the celestial city. Okay? So it's an analogy of the Christian life. In one incident in the story, Christian encounters a char character called Mr. Facing Both Ways. He has two faces and tries to deceive Christian on his journey to the celestial city. Claiming to be a pilgrim like Christian, he begins talking positively about the city of destruction, hell, okay, and warns them about continuing their journey to the celestial city. Finally, his true nature is revealed as he attempts to lead them astray. A Christian cannot be double-minded by loving this world and claiming to follow God. This is what Matthew 6.24 says, Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. So we have to determine in the Christian life who is our Lord, who is our master, who is our leader. Is it other people's approval? Is it control over our life? Is it power and influence? Is it comfort or is it making Jesus the Lord of our life? That he gets to determine our path, that he gets to determine our life, and he shows us how to live. Friends, I don't know where you are on this. I don't know where you land on this. But if you suffer from double-mindedness, you can repent from that today.
you can put your trust in Christ not only in the future hope, but in today's hope. Turn away from your doubt and instead remind yourself of who God is. Remind yourself of what He has done. And I want you to really think about what lie could you be believing about God? Don't just believe in God, but believe God. Believe what He has said. That is the design that He has for us as we walk through trials. So let's talk about this at our tables for the next 10 minutes, and then we'll wrap up with the last point. All right, guys. Sounds like there was some good discussion. Hopefully you got to read uh, just the hope that's in 1 Peter 5. Such a great passage. Um, That's really what we're going to be talking about in the second half. So go ahead and turn. We're going to stay in chapter 1 for just one more verse, and then we're going to flip to chapter 5. So if you want to, you can stick a finger in chapter 5 because we'll be there in just a second. So first, let's read chapter 1, verse 12. It says... Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, chapter 5, 7 through 11. Let's read that. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. All right, our last point today, we'll talk about this idea of looking at trials with God's patience. And that's the hope in knowing the end. The reality is there's hope at the end of God's timeline. That's what we talked about last week as we wrapped up the last series. But these verses talk about this hope. In verse 12, James closes the thought by discussing the reward for the patient servant of Christ. There's a reward for the one who perseveres. It says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This blessed is actually the same word that's used in the Beatitudes. Whenever Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who, this is actually the same same Greek word that's used here. And I love it because it displays a truth that we should all know. That we should all know. There is a connection between faithful perseverance and a genuine love for God. There is a connection between faithful perseverance and genuine love for God. Think about it. A genuine believer is one who genuinely, truly loves God. If you only love God when things are good, then you might be worshiping the gifts He's given you instead of the giver Himself. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 explains it in more detail. He says, In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> when Jesus returns, friends, he will return in glory. Imagine the splendor, the majesty of Christ's return. Now imagine the process that we've talked about earlier, that what trials do is they refine us and they, they, they test us and they, they prove us into this genuineness of faith. In this passage, it shows us that the refining process of trials results in what? The tested genuineness of your faith. And it's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. It's this idea that if our faith, being compared to gold here, the more refined, the more pure our faith is, the more clearly Christ's glory will be reflected. Through our trials becoming more like Christ, we can bring Christ's glory with every part of our life. The more and more we become like Christ, even in the here and now, we can reflect His glory. We don't have to wait for His return, but in the midst of our trials, how we respond to that, it can be different than this world. It can be different than how this world responds to hard times. Now, because of this ultimate reward, we should anticipate with excitement the return of Christ. Okay, So this is where we get the idea of God's patience. Verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Man, I love it when passages just tell you what the application is, right? You don't even have to guess what James is wanting us to do. He gives us three application points here about what we should do when we're faced with trials. Number one, we should be patient. Man, that's a hard one, right? When you're going through hard times, how difficult is it to be patient? It's so difficult. Be patient, okay? So patience is mentioned four times in this passage. We should be patient because trials are not permanent, but they are temporary. Number two, it says establish our hearts. I love the phrasing of this because it basically, basically goes back to, okay, what are you setting your heart on? Are you setting it on the hope that you will get everything you want, that your dreams will come true, that you'll have the career or the spouse or you know whatever uh, in your life that you want? Or is it based on something unchanging? Is it based on the trustworthiness of God's character? Is it based on who He is? Is it based on the promises that He has made His children? Establish your heart not on the things that you want. Establish your heart not on things getting better, but establish your heart on the unchanging truth and character of God. That is how we can be patient, is if we are establishing our hearts on what is true. Number three, don't grumble against one another. I feel like he was calling somebody out in this passage in his church or something, someone he knew. Because how easy is it to blame other people or to get mad at other people when things aren't going your way? It's really easy. I mean, just think of your roommates. If you've had a bad day, how easy is it to lash out on them, right? But James asks us to be cognizant of that, to be aware. Don't grumble against one another. Our brothers don't deserve our grumbling. Now, what does this patience look like? That's the question. 
Okay, he's saying patient. What does this look like? Well, the cool thing is he tells us it looks like the farmer, right, in verse 7. And what does the farmer do? He cares for the crops. He waters the crops. He prepares the fields. He tills the field. And then what does he do? He waits. He waits. Things don't change overnight. They don't. We are not who we are going to be in a year today. There are processes in which things change, in which things grow, so we must be patient as we trust in the Lord. Lastly, James in verses 10 through 11 asks us to consider the prophets and Job when we think of God's timeline and seek his patience. James uses this farmer to illustrate this idea, but there's more concrete, concrete examples than just the farmer. There are actually people who lived out this patience that James is talking about. Just think about the prophets and their faithfulness, their steadfastness, what that has produced today. When you open your Bibles, what do you see? You see their faithfulness. You see God speaking through them. When you look at Job, what do you see? You see the faithfulness of God, that even in the hardest of circumstances, God does not leave his children. Robert Pumler Plummer, excuse me, Robert Plummer says, even in great suffering for which we have no explanation, we know the Lord's story is not finished, for he will triumph. Today, James has taught us that we will face trials, but the Christian is not hopeless in his trials. There's hope. There's hope in the present that God is bringing out purpose out of each trial, and an assured hope in the future renewal of all things that it will not always be like this. Because God has a purpose in our trials, then we can have hope. So we saw this by looking at God's purpose in the midst of trials, God's perspective of trials, and God's patience in the midst of trials. Now my final application is this, guys. When you are going through a trial, remind yourself on what you know. Write down what you know not what you feel. Our feelings are deceptive. They change. They lie to us. But what we know about God, what we know about ourselves, what we know about this world, is something that is far more foundational. So we asked earlier, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, even though there is no such thing as a good person, today we have learned that even though bad things do happen to people we love, happen to ourselves, we can have hope. We can have hope. Those who are not in Christ can't have hope in the midst of trials because their hope is in the circumstance. Their hope is in the circumstance changing. But our hope, the Christian hope, is that God can bring a purpose out of these trials, that God can change us through these trials, that God can relieve us and save us from these trials. So, do not be swayed by changing circumstances. Do not be like the sailboat in the ocean that's crushed by waves, but set your hope on truth, what you know. Let's pray, guys. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of James and how we can learn how to walk in holiness, that we don't have to guess how you've called us to live, but Lord, that you would shape and change our hearts to be more obedient to you. God, um, Lord, where we are not following you, where we have chosen to go our own way, Lord, lead us to repentance, lead us to faith, so that we might give you glory and honor with all of our lives. 
We pray this in your son's name. Amen.